20th of January, 2009. Then if that date means anything to you at all, 20th of January, 2009. Uh, for me, it's always been a date I've remembered a little bit. Uh, I was teaching, I was a teacher at the time, teaching history in a school, teaching A-level history, and uh, we've been teaching, uh, for the first time we've been teaching a unit or a module on the American Civil Rights Movement. So the campaign that was launched, particularly in the 40s, 50s and 60s, by African Americans to be able to achieve and gain equal rights. And uh, we've been, for the first time, I've been teaching it, so I've been learning it and teaching it, kind of one step ahead of the kids, just about on a good day with a fair wind. And we've been looking at what it meant for the Af African Americans in, uh, in the United States to be able to begin to make the constitutional claim that all men were created equal to actually be true and to overcome some of the restrictions on voting rights and educational segregation and health and so on. And I love teaching the course, and I think the kids generally seem to enjoy learning the course. And the reason why the date is significant is because before Christmas, of course, 2008, Barack Obama had been elected as the first African-American uh, to be president of the United States. And so for us, teaching and learning, it was really thrilling to be learning this stuff, seeing what it meant for the Americans to travel this journey of having to overcome massive segregation in the lives of African-Americans. Then on the same day, seeing Obama become elected as an African-American to the president of America. I don't think even Martin Luther King in his most famous I Have a Dream speech could really have dreamt there'd be an African-American sitting on the presidential throne, as it were. On the 29th of January, sorry, 20th January 2009, was his inauguration speech. And he got 400,000 people gathering in Washington to hear his speech, millions more around America and around the world gathering to hear that first inauguration speech that he gave. And I was so excited. I really had got caught up, I guess, with the hope that came as a result of his election. If you remember his campaign of change and hope, it was really easy to get caught up with the optimism and the hope that his election produced. Could this be a new day, a new start for American politics, American society, world, and global politics? I was really excited. I think particularly having seen something of the historical struggles that it had meant for any African-American to have equal rights, let alone be president. And so rather naughtily, I finished my lesson five minutes early, just left the kids there, legged it out to the car park, jumped in the car, got out of the school before all the parents arrived and the traffic got too bad and drove probably too quickly home to watch this first inauguration speech on 20th January 2009. And I guess, as I say, I was just a bit kind of captivated by the hope that his election brought. Do you remember that famous poster that was quite an iconic moment in the campaign of a picture of him with hope across the front? And so many got caught up with the hope that his election inspired. Could he bring in something new for America, for the world, for the globe, and so on? And I found, really, that hope is quite a contagious thing. When you, get caught, when you get caught up in hope, it just kind of spreads. It's quite a contagious thing. You get caught up in it. I wanted to be part of that inauguration address, just from afar, just because I was caught up in the hope of the moment of his presidency. And I guess as his presidency comes to an end, you kind of think, man, how could the guy ever really have fulfilled all the expectations that were upon him? It's just impossible, I think, for him to fulfill everything people were hoping of him. And I'm not here to make a case for Obama's legacy. I'm just pointing out that the hope that his election engendered, uh, and for many, as his time in office comes to an end, people will now be analysing whether their hopes were fulfilled. As he concludes his time in office, people will think, were the hopes that I had for this man, this leader, were they fulfilled as I was hoping? I think many of us at the moment probably are looking for hope, not least in our own nation, given the upheavals of the last week or two. It's been pretty pertinent for us, I think, the upheaval of the referendum results and of party leaders stepping down or being asked to step down and so on. Never has there been more of a time of upheaval, perhaps, in our society, at least for the last few years. And for some, they see the referendum result or new leaders as being a time of new hope emerging. Could this be the start of something greater and better? 
For others, they're wondering, where is the hope? This seems hopeless. So perhaps it's a pertinent thing for us to be talking about. And we are in a series of talks called Perspective, Live for the Day, which is based in 1 Peter. And Peter is writing a letter to first century Turkish Christians in about 63 AD. And he knows what I think all of us know today, that if you uh, know where you're heading and what you're living for, then you can live each day with clarity and poise. That's what he's been saying all along through his letter, even if the circumstances in which you're living are particularly tough. In fact, Peter believes that one of the things that should mark a Christian out is that whatever the circumstances, they live with a contagious sense of hope. Hope marks a Christian out, Peter believes, in this particular passage. He wants to say that hope is contagious, and ultimate hope is ultimately contagious. Let's see how he explains that. We're in chapter 3 of ver- and verse 8. I'm going to read through to verse 18. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What I want to do really is just to hone in on verse 15. There's all kinds of things you could draw out this passage, but I want to look particularly at verse 15. Let me read it again. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect. I put it to you that Peter believes that when Christians live with ultimate hope, it is ultimately contagious. People can't help but catch something of it. To the point where they ask, why? Why do you believe that? Why do you live with that sense of hope? What's behind the way you're living? Peter believes that Christian hope, ultimate hope, is ultimately contagious. So as ever, I only have one point this morning, one question for you, which is, do you live with a contagious sense of ultimate hope? Do you live with a contagious sense of ultimate hope? Let me unpack that across three points. The nature of contagious hope, the source of of contagious hope, and a lifestyle of contagious hope. The nature, the source, and the lifestyle. So firstly, I guess we need to define, don't we, what hope is. And we need to define it in accordance with what Peter is saying it is in his context. context. 
As I tried to explain with the whole Obama thing, there's something just magical about hope when it gets inside you. It's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Forgive me for a second historical uh, analogy, but I'm thinking of the Battle of Dunkirk in 1940, when uh, if ever there was a defeat for the British nation and the Allies, it was, it was Dunkirk in 1940, if you know the story. Like when 338,000 men flee from the enemy, that's a defeat, yeah? When soldiers have to rely on civilians to sail their dinghies and their barges over to rescue them, that's a defeat, when the Nazi empire can sweep across the whole of Europe within months, leaving Britain on its own, sheltering on its own little island, that is a defeat. Dunkirk was, no, was undoubtedly a pretty uh, hopeless defeat. It looked pretty bleak at that point for the British nation. But one of Winston Churchill's gifts, I think, despite not always coming across as overly hopeful, was that he knew the power of hope. And he was very clever, I think, along with the BBC, in portraying what was undoubtedly a defeat at Dunkirk as a victory. He and the BBC did it very cleverly. They would say things like, isn't it wonderful that all of our men are safe? Most of them got back home. Wonderful. They would say the great British public acted so heroically to rescue our brave soldiers and get them back home. Look, we can now survive to fight another day. The end is not, is not now. No, no wars are won by evacuations, but we're able to fight another day. And bit by bit, he began to engender more and more hope, despite the defeat of Dunkirk. And when, of course, he muffled, muttered his immortal words in the House of Commons, we shall never surrender, we shall fight them on the beaches, we shall fight them on the London grounds, hope had been engendered in the British nation, and it was contagious. People caught hold of it. People caught hold of the hope that he had managed to bring. And it mobilized them into action. And ultimately, it mobilized them into victory. But obviously, hope doesn't have to be as, I guess, on a bigger scale as that. We talk about and believe in hope all the time in much smaller, everyday, even trivial terms. Every year, I hope that it won't rain so much this summer. That this will be the summer when we have a long, hot barbecue summer. And I hope for that. I'm not the only one, I think, judging by the nods in the room. And even despite the hopeless performances of our national team in the European Championships, I know that when the next manager is appointed, hope will just begin to emerge again. People will think, is this finally the guy that can lead us to some sort of respectable performance in the European Championships? Hope will just emerge, and hope is contagious. Once it gets in you, once it gets into a people, it spreads whatever hope or whatever kind of hope it might be. What about Christian hope? Let's drill it down a bit more specifically. What about Christian hope? It's been my experience, people can often assume that Christian hope is a little bit like hoping it'll be a long, hot summer, that it won't rain, or hoping that one day England might win the World Cup. That Christian hope is kind of hoping for the best in order to feel better. A hope that perhaps kind of refuses to confront the facts, that's slightly blind optimism, maybe. You might have heard of... Um, the famous philosophical argument called Pascal's Wager, when the philosopher Pascal puts forward a quite a simple argument, and he says, really, it's just pragmatic common sense to believe in the Christian God, he says, because if you do believe in him, and then you get to the end of your life, and you die, and you realize that you were right, then great. And if you do believe in him, and you get to the end of your life, and you realize that he's not real, then you haven't lost anything. But if you don't believe in the Christian God, and you get to the end of your life, and you're proved to be wrong, and he does exist then you do stand to lose something. So Pascal says, being Christian, just common sense, just pragmatic. It's like covering your bases. So is that kind of why the Christian hope has been, I would argue, so contagious over the centuries? Why it's spread so much? 
because it's kind of making the best of things. It helps us to feel better about ourselves. Well, interestingly, I think Peter would have something to say about that in this passage because he says a Christian is someone who should be able to give the reason for their hope. Did you pick that out in the passage? To put it a different way, he would say Christians should have a rationale for their faith that would stand up to scrutiny. That's what he was saying in verse 15. So if the nature of contagious hope is that it spreads, is that it can mobilize people, and that it should be built on some degree of evidence and reason, what's the source of contagious hope? What's the source of Christian contagious hope? Well, Peter's already given us the reason at the beginning of the, of the letter. Well, Peter, if you were with us for the first of our talks, or maybe you've caught up with them on the, on the podcast, he told us in chapter 1, right at the beginning, what is the reason for Christian contagious hope? I'll read you the passage. Verses chapter 1 and verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So Peter says, A Christian is someone who's been given the ultimate hope. A new life, a brand new life. That's what born again means. It means you get a brand new start, a brand new life in Christ. And what's the living hope based on? Did you hear when I read it? What's the rationale behind it? How is it possible to have a living, contagious, ultimate Christian hope? He said it's possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Peter knows that the whole of the Christian faith, the foundation of the ultimate hope that Christians have, kind of pretty much hangs on the claim that Jesus came back to life again, having been dead. That's the whole deal. Everything really hangs on the resurrection in the Christian faith, the Christian hope. And Peter, as a historically documented eyewitness of Jesus' life and death, and it's claimed one of 500 reported witnesses of his resurrection, he knows why the Christian hope is sure and of ultimate significance. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not legitimate to ask questions of the resurrection, to question it, to doubt it. Of course it is. You don't just accept something on the resurrection without asking some pretty big questions. And so I just want to say, as an aside really, that, that doubt is not the enemy of faith. In fact, I think doubt is a companion of faith to some extent. Doubt is sometimes a companion of the Christian hope. I don't know about you, but part of my following of Jesus is engaging with doubts that come up from time to time, which they do. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. We shouldn't be nervous or defensive, I don't think, if we have doubts or if those around us have doubts. Rather, we should engage with those doubts and look for the reason behind the hope. And none, no, in, in, no more so than something like, something like the resurrection. Because like, without stating the obvious, we know that generally speaking, supernatural events like people come back to life again just don't happen. So I guess the question is therefore, do you engage with your doubt by writing it off as impossible? Or do you engage with your doubt by looking at the evidence or the reasons behind this foundation of Christian hope? I don't have lots of time to do that now. I want to take a few moments just to do that now. But I haven't got that much that long. So this is kind of where you're at. I'd recommend an author called Lee Strobel. He's a brilliant author who did exactly that, who had massive doubts about the claims of the resurrection and all the other claims of Christianity. And instead of writing off as impossible, engaged with it and studied hard 
and in the end ended up coming to a position of being a follower of Jesus. And he's written a number of books I think are really helpful for exploring the evidence, the reasons, the foundations for why having a hope in Christianity is not a blind optimism, but is founded on some genuine evidence and reasons. So I really encourage you to look up his various books if that would be of help. But just for a few moments, let me just look at some of the evidence for this foundation, the resurrection, of the hope that Christians have. But a few things. So it's been suggested, for, for example, that Jesus maybe didn't actually die on the cross. So non Christian gospel texts would document the fact that Jesus was crucified, but the claim is maybe he didn't actually die. Maybe he fainted, passed out, and then was buried and somehow kind of uh, came to and was able to take off all, his, uh, all the uh, burial clothes and was able to un- move a, a large stone out of the way, overpower a few guards. And it just seems unlikely when Roman, cent- Roman soldiers were professionally paid to make sure that you did die on the cross. Secondly, there's a claim that maybe that Jesus did die, and the disciples stole the body. So perhaps they were so mortified and distraught at the end of their hope that they stole his body and pretended to everyone that Jesus was alive. And I guess distraught people are capable of almost anything. I totally get that. And maybe people would just make something up to feel better, at least for a time. But what I guess I find unlikely is the fact that all of those disciples, all of them went to their deaths grisly, horrible deaths, bar John, all of them insisting that Jesus had risen from the dead and was Lord, and they got killed for that. So it's one thing for a distraught person to make something up and get a conspiracy going, but for them to all maintain that conspiracy all the way through to suffering an awful death as a result of believing in the resurrection and that Jesus was Lord, again, seems to me to be unlikely. Also, what about how do you account for the transformation in in these men particularly? How do you explain the change from Friday to Monday, the the Easter weekend? Because on the Friday, these are scared men who pretty much all deserted Jesus in his time of need. They're hiding in a room, it says. And then by like Monday, Tuesday, the following week, they're standing in the heart of Jerusalem, boldly proclaiming that Jesus is risen from the dead again. And they go to their very deaths, still proclaiming that thing. Now, all kinds of things can explain a person's transformation, but theirs was dramatic. And also, they didn't go to a far-flung town somewhere else in the Middle East and proclaim Jesus' resurrection. They proclaimed it in Jerusalem, the place of Jesus' death. Which strikes me as interesting, because as I was trying to make something up, I wouldn't do it in the place where it obviously wasn't true. I go to the place where it maybe could be possibly true. They did it in the heart of Jerusalem. And we know that the Jewish and Roman authorities were desperate to stamp out Christianity straight away. And they knew where Jesus was buried, in a well-known person's well-known tomb. So all they had to do was go to the tomb, get the body, show it through the streets of Jerusalem, and Christianity dies like that. And yet they didn't. And none of those things prove beyond all doubt that Jesus rose from death to life. But they just begin to unpack the fact that Peter's right. There are reasons for the hope that we have. There are reasons for the resurrection that underpins it. He doesn't just encourage readers to be able to give a defense for their hope. He tells them there are reasons for you to give a defense for your hope. Jesus knows, sorry, Peter knows that the resurrection means everything. He knows really that the whole of the Christian's hope hangs on that because it means that Jesus is alive and well. 
It means that Jesus really has ascended to be with the Father in a heavenly dimension. And he really will fulfill the rest of his promises. Namely, to return one day and renew a broken earth with the perfection of heaven. Everything hands on the resurrection in many respects. And Peter knows that for us, maybe the perspective shift is to see what the resurrection means and what it encompasses and what it will ultimately uh, cause. And that means we live very differently day to day. Peter knows that there is an ultimate hope and it is ultimately contagious. So if the nature of hope is that it has a contagious aspect to it and it should be built on evidence and reason, and the source of Christian hope is the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from death to life that has evidence and credibility to it, what is the lifestyle of those who adhere to that Christian hope? What's the lifestyle of people that are living with contagious hope? I noticed uh, last week that someone in in this church posted something on Facebook that caught my attention. And uh, she had posted uh, uh, a comment along the lines of, given the uncertainty that surrounds Brexit and all of the uncertainty that has gone with it and people's various reactions to it, given all of that and how people might be feeling in very different ways, she just offered to pray for her friends. You may have seen the post that I'm referring to. She just offered to pray for people, whether they were Christian friends or, or not. And the thing that most struck me about the post, I guess, was the sense of hope that it had, the tone that it came with. She was basically saying, this whole Brexit referendum thing is quite difficult for some of us. In fact, life can occasionally be quite difficult for some of us. But, and I'm paraphrasing, I have a hope of which I'm sure and certain. And because I know that Jesus is alive and well, that means he's perfectly capable and willing of answering prayers. So can I pray for you? Hope came through, I thought, loud and clear. And as I understand it, a few of her friends did indeed respond and said, yeah, I'd love you to pray for me, friends that aren't currently exploring the gospel. Why? Because ultimate hope is ultimately contagious. It spreads. It gets into people. Her friends had caught just something of that. A sense that a better life maybe is possible, that a different world perhaps is possible, that maybe even more profoundly there isn't just a God but one who loves me. Hope is contagious. The Christian hope, I believe, is the ultimate hope and is ultimately contagious. And for those of us who are learning to live with contagious, ultimate hope in Christ, built upon his death and resurrection and return, we're looking for our lifestyle to more and more reflect that. And Peter's point in the beginning of the passage is that when someone lives with such a clear hope like that, their lifestyle will reflect it. It's not going to come up on the screen, but let me read to you again verse 8, how he's encouraging people that live with Christian hope to live. And you can write these words off as a bit do-gooderish, but I think they are profound words if you live like this. I find this hard to live like this. These are profound words for those that want to live with contagious ultimate hope. He says, finally, verse 8 and 9, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, Brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So Peter's saying, someone with a sense of contagious hope, their lifestyle will look like that. Someone who's received off-the-scale love will give love, is what he's saying. Somebody who's received tenderness 
will give tenderness. Someone who's received mercy and forgiveness will give mercy and forgiveness. Someone who's received contagious ultimate hope will give off a sense of contagious and ultimate hope. So just an analogy perhaps to help us. It won't have escaped you that the Wimbledon season is well and truly upon us. I don't know where your hope is uh, currently placed to that end. Um, but if you are following the Wimbledon tennis at all, and most of us do a little bit, even if we're not big tennis fans, you might overhear an American commentator called John McEnroe, who commentates quite often. And you might have seen that Andy Murray has re-employed his previous coach called uh, Ivan Lendl. And you probably know that both of those two were pretty distinguished players, uh, to put it mildly, back in, the, back in the day in the 1980s. Sorry, as though back in the day is like historically ancient. In the 1980s, these two were pretty uh, amazing players. Uh, and I, uh, I discovered that they had an amazing match in 1984. They're both in the French Open final, McEnroe and Lendl. And McEnroe was two sets to love up and a breakup. Now, very rare does anybody ever come back from that kind of scenario in tennis, let alone in a French Open final, let alone against John McEnroe and his pomp, let alone against the fact that McEnroe hadn't lost for 39 matches. So you couldn't have imagined a more hopeless scenario. Two sets down, breakdown. The guy you're playing hasn't lost for 39 matches. Unbeatable. And as I was reading about this, uh, about this match, I promise you was genuine sermon research rather than just my own sporting uh, enjoyment. Uh, I was reading that Lendl talked about the hope that he had in the third set. And he was saying that tennis is like really unique in some ways. Because with something like football, if you are getting smashed, you're 4-0 down with five minutes to go, Game over. You just cannot win. Never been done. But in tennis, you can be getting equally smashed, and Lendl was, and there's always a bit of hope. Because one point, one match point saved means the whole thing can turn around. See what I mean? And he was saying that he clung on to the fact there's always hope in tennis. You're never out of it until match point has been uh, concluded. And he said the hope that he had was if he could just break McEnroe's serve once, he reckoned everything would turn on that. And sure enough, he broke McEnroe's serve. He won the third set, he won the fourth set, and somehow he won the five, fifth set, and he somehow came back from two sets of love down, breakdown, to win this amazing French Open final. My point is that having hope, even a bit of hope, transforms situations. Living with hope transforms a situation. Now, Ivan Lendl's hope, ultimately, was in his not inconsiderable tennis skill. The Christian hope is in the bodily resurrection from death to life of Jesus Christ, God himself. If Lendl's hope in his tennis skill could transform a life situation in one moment, what can having ultimate, genuine resurrection hope in the life of a Christian transform? He, he lived with a degree of hope and it changed things. If a Christian really lives with a sense of hope, then they act like Peter's encouraging them to, with unity of mind and sympathy and love and tenderness and humility, that those kinds of things transform situations. They change people's lives, they change work lives, difficult relationships, they change neighborhoods. These aren't trite words. Humility, tenderness, love, sympathy, responding to evil with Uh, with graciousness. Those are not simple, trite words. Hope is a transformative thing, and it's contagious, I think, when we get a hold of it. And it's contagious for people to observe. But Peter also said, I hope we didn't miss this in the passage, he also said that although when you are acting like that, peace will reign and there'll be unity and, and people will see it and there'll be love and tenderness and forgiveness, he also said, and sometimes it will result in suffering. Did you see that? 
can just very quickly turn it on its head. And by the way, it won't always happen like this. Sometimes you behaving like this will result in you suffering. Full stop. <laughs> Luckily, he carries on. He said it in verse 13. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake. What he means in this context is that sometimes opposition comes when you live with contagious, ultimate Christian hope. That's what happens then. When you don't get love back or forgiveness back or gratitude back or even hope back. What happens then? Well, firstly, this has been really challenging for me this week. I want to just note the fact that Peter seems to assume that people will ask Christians, what's the reason for your hope? Did you see that? He just assumes that people will ask you, maybe not literally, but will inquire as to why do you live like you do? Why do you behave like this, especially in the midst of suffering? He assumes people will inquire and be engaged and get something of the contagiousness of Christian hope. That has been very challenging for me this week. How many of my friends and family will will see a contagious, unique sense of hope in me and inquire why it's there? I found that challenging. It's caused me to pray. And secondly, Peter is clear that a tender, loving, gracious manner should continue even if opposition comes. Do you see that? He said we should always answer with gentleness and respect. And at times the church has not, not done that. It hasn't answered opposition or different arguments with gentleness and respect. But it's in the light of what Peter's encouraging that we're doing our Ask London series in the, in the autumn, which I hope most of you will be well aware of. We've said that we want to listen to the questions and objections that our friends and family and neighbours have about the Christian faith and not just assume that we know what they are. And when we have listened to them, we want to do our best to engage with them in our autumn series. I guess Peter would say to explain the reason for the hope that we have. So if you haven't already, can I really be encouraging you to think about who you could ask to uh, submit one of these short little 30-second videos. Really easy. All they have to do is just you just record on an iPhone or they do it themselves and send it to you. Really easy. All we're asking is, can, can you help us so that we can listen and learn and then engage with these questions so that we can give the reason for our hope, I guess is what Peter would say. And all we're doing is asking somebody, if you had an objection to the Christian God, what would it be in 30 seconds? Or to put it a different way, why is the Christian faith not for you in 30 seconds? And they can record it on their phone or tablet and send it to you, or you can record them really easy. Go onto my church app, upload it, and then we'll do our best to listen and to engage, and of course, I hope to answer with gentleness and respect. So, can I, can I encourage you, if you aren't already, to be thinking about who you can ask, thinking, praying about it, who might God give you a little bit of a nudge to, to ask? I can promise you that good conversations will always come from these, conversa- from these questions. Even if someone says no, there's always a great conversation to be had. People are really, in my experience, just quite chuffed to be asked. So can I really encourage you to give it a go, to get these videos in? We'd love to engage with them. I think it'll be a really good series. It's going to be a challenging series. Remember, all of us have doubts. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. So all of us, I think, are going to benefit from this series as we engage some of the big, big questions that do give us cause for doubts. So I think it's going to be beneficial for all of us. I'd really encourage you to give it a go, get these videos in, and we'll do the best that we can to get stuck in with some of these questions. Let me just close by going back to Peter, I suppose, and Peter himself, and the resurrection itself. You see, it strikes me that Peter isn't just 
kind of writing a theoretical letter. He's not just writing an instruction to some faraway Christians for them to do some things according to his theory. He's, He's been through it. He's lived this stuff. He knows what it is to live with ultimate hope. He knows what it is to find it contagious, even in the midst of difficulty and difficult circumstances. Like just for a moment, go back to that, that resurrection weekend that we now call Easter. Go back to the Saturday. So Jesus was killed and buried on the Friday. Go back to the Saturday. Can you imagine how hopeless things must have felt for Peter? How he'd, he'd given up his whole world to follow Jesus. Given everything. And he was convinced that Jesus really was the Son of God. God in human form on earth to bring mankind to God. He was convinced that Jesus was the hope of the world. And on Easter Saturday, as far as he was concerned, Jesus, along with all of Peter's hopes, was rotting in a corpse, rotting in a tomb somewhere as a corpse. I just can't fathom how hopeless he must have felt. And just to kind of compound that, he had pretty much disgraced himself. He had abandoned Jesus in his hour of need, all of his pledges to, to be the main guy just had been proved to be nonsense. He denied he even knew Jesus. So on Easter Saturday, he, had to, he knew he had to live with that for the rest of his life. He'd had to live with the fact that all of his hopes and the hope of Jesus and the hope that he had of being the kind of man he wanted to be, all of that just lay like a corpse in a tomb. So he knew what it was to confront hopelessness. And that's why he says everything hinges on the resurrection. Because the next day his world changed. Hope returned more vibrantly and beautifully than he ever could have imagined. And that's why he says the Christian hope, the living, ultimate, contagious Christian hope is based upon the resurrection of Jesus. Because it changed his life. He went from being someone who'd let Jesus down, who'd pretty much given up, to being someone who boldly proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, all the way to the murder and the death that he experienced. The resurrection changed it, and he lived with hope all of thereafter. We're going to have got some more time to, just to respond and to worship, and it might be that uh, people might begin to bring things as God's speaking. One of the Robin and the band could come and join me. Uh, we'll be having communion as well, which we always do on the first Sunday of the month, and we think it makes sense to take some time over that, and we have time to do that in a second. So I'll pray in a second, and we'll uh, sing this first song together, and then Andrew will help us respond by sharing communion together. So I guess I just want to return to where I started, really, and just ask the question, do you live with a contagious sense of ultimate hope? I've been asking myself that this week, and I've not always been able to answer the question with a resounding yes. But like I say, I think these doubts are not inauthentic when you're a follower of Jesus. So I'm not asking you the question so that you leave feeling condemned. I don't. I'm asking you the question so that you return to Jesus in this time of worship and communion. Remind yourself of his death and his resurrection. The fact that because of him, there is a living hope. Perspective has changed. Everything shifts. We're not trying to live good lives to please God. We're living in the light of the fact that Jesus has pleased God for us. We're living in the light of the fact that there really is a sure and certain hope. That because Jesus is alive and well, not rotting in a corpse somewhere, he is well able to one day return to complete what he started. The renewal of a broken earth with the perfection of heaven.
That's why we've been saying over and over again in this series, the perspective shifts when you understand this letter. You start to look long and far ahead to the day when the resurrected Jesus will return and make all things beautiful and new and perfect. And when you know that, you can live with ultimate and contagious hope. And you can go through the worst of things. (laughs) But if your eye and your gaze is fixed upon ultimate hope, people will notice They might not say, can you tell me the reason for your hope? But you might find they spend some more time with you. You might find they ask some pretty good questions. You might find they feel able to talk to you about difficult stuff. Because Christian hope, ultimate hope, built on the death and the resurrection and the return of Christ is contagious. Let's stand. And we'll sing together before Andrew leads us in communion. We're going to sing a great song called You Have Won Me. I'll pray. And then the band will lead us in that. We might sing a different song. We'll sing a song that Robin thinks is the best song for us to sing. And I will submit to his leadership. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we uh, know you as our perfect, ultimate living hope. We thank you that we're not just crossing our fingers, hoping that this whole life has got some meaning and some purpose. We can look to a historical event where you came back from death to life. And we can know, therefore, that you're alive and you're well. You have to love us because of what you accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection. You have to be God because of what you accomplished through the cross and resurrection. You have to be capable of fulfilling all of your future promises because you fulfilled them at the cross and resurrection. And we thank you that our privilege is to trust you and know you. Our privilege is to live with a sense of contagious hope that whatever the circumstances of day-to-day life bring, because we have our gaze and our perspective fixed upon the day ahead when you will return, we can live every day with clarity and meaning and poise and courage and purpose, trusting you to do amazing things through us and in us. We love you, Jesus, and we respond with worship. We bring our doubts and our questions to you if we have them, and we ask you to help us to engage with them, to see our faith grow upon the living ultimate hope of Christ himself. Amen.